Today we're going to be looking at the last of the four characteristics or traits of the early church that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 42, where we read, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Join with me in prayer, will you? Father, I ask that you would illumine our minds as we delve into this passage. I thank you for the privilege of sharing your word, of exegeting this passage. I pray that you will give each one of us grace to grasp what you have in store for us, and that we would flesh out this truth as the early church did. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Prayer. Who has not prayed? I think everyone has prayed at one point or another. I heard that even atheists have prayed on a plane that is in a rapid descent when it's about to crash. Yes, prayer is common to all. Some pray to God, some pray to their own uh, gods of their religion. But we're looking at today at the prayer of the early church and how their prayer took a dramatic turn because these were already praying Jews. Jews knew about prayer. But we're going to look at how their prayer life completely changed once they became believers in Christ. So in the past few weeks, we've been looking at the early church. We've been looking at um, how these baptized members who first received the message of Peter, 3,000 of them on the day of Pentecost, were given a new life. And then we see them devoted to the Word of God. There's hunger for the Word. Secondly, we saw their recognition that the church is the new holy ground, and so they enjoyed fellowship around the Word of God and around uh, the people of God. Then thirdly, we saw their eagerness to talk about the Christ, to share the gospel through an ordinary means, bread and the cup. And now today we're going to be looking at prayer, their devotion to prayer. Luke gives us a snapshot of what the early church looked like with this verse, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And if we look at the early church, they were a praying church. Now, some of you may be questioning your prayer life. You're saying, I don't have a desire to pray. Um, I struggle to share the gospel. I, I struggle to read God's word, and I have very little desire for fellowship. I believe in most instances, Christians feel guilty that they have very little desire for prayer or for sharing the gospel or fellowship and um, just for reading God's word. They have this little desire and they feel bad about it. They seek to not make a big deal about it, but there's a nagging, guilty feeling that doesn't leave them. And some of you may be wondering, am I really a Christian? Am I saved? I don't have this devotion that the early church had to God's word and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. I don't have that kind of devotion. Am I really a Christian? 
So I want to say something to you in particular, because you may be already discouraged, and I don't want you to be discouraged. And this is the reason why I don't want you to get discouraged. Not because I'm saying it, because God's word is saying this. The faint desire that you have in your heart, that little desire for prayer, for fellowship, for uh, reading God's word, that faint desire is not there because it comes from you. It's not birthed in you. That desire comes from God himself. See, if I look at my life, there have been times I had a faint desire, a weak desire for prayer, a weak desire for God's word, a weak desire for fellowship. I did. And the reason why I had a weak desire is because there were winds of controversy, of adversity, of opposition, of worldliness that were blowing in my life and trying to snuff out and extinguish altogether the desire for prayer. Because we're looking at prayer in particular. But that desire persisted because it's fueled by God himself. God is the one who gives us this holy desire. Now, you may be discouraged with your double-mindedness, with your weaknesses, with your shallow desires for prayer, but that desire is still there. And you may even be upset with yourself that you do not want to pray and that you don't pray like you ought to pray. But here I have to tell you that that desire cannot be snuffed out because you are a child of God. You are a child of God. So no matter how small, how weak, that holy desire is within your life. Remember, it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from you. Because no holy desire comes from us. In Psalm 87, we read these beautiful words in verse 7. All my springs are in you. Now that simply means that godly desires originate with God. He's the one who creates these holy desires within his children. And of course, we're looking at the prayer, at the topic of prayer, and especially how the early church devoted themselves to prayer. And what we see here is that their prayer life took a dramatic turn once they were filled with the Spirit. Once they received the gospel in their lives, they changed in prayer. Now, I want us to start by debunking this myth before I delve into the passage. This is the myth, that we need to have it all together for God to hear us in prayer. How many times have we thought that? How many times have we heard that? We've got to have it all together as children of God if God is going to listen to us. Well, that's not necessarily the truth, not according to God's word. And it's James that points this out in his letter in James chapter 5 when he speaks of Elijah. And this is what he says. From verse 16, halfway, a prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, there are many truths that we can glean from this passage. 
But I want to draw your attention to one thing in particular, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Another version says that he was a man that had similar weaknesses, like our weaknesses. And yet his weaknesses did not limit his prayer. For example, if you look at the life of Elijah, you will discover that at times he was afraid, that he wanted to give up on the ministry, that he wanted to give up on the people of Israel, that he wanted to hide, right? He was discouraged. And at one point he said, I want to die. So he was a man who had weaknesses, and yet God heard his prayer. Nowhere in Scripture do we see weaknesses limiting God when it comes to prayer. Our weaknesses do not hinder God. Your discouragement, your fears, your struggles with the flesh do not limit the hand of God. Take courage and pray because of this truth. Now, disobedience, yes, hinders our prayers. Unbelief, yes, hinders our prayer, but not weaknesses. Otherwise, Elijah's prayers would never have been answered. God is not looking for the perfect conditions to answer your prayer. Any more than you as a parent are looking for the perfect condition in your child when he comes to you with a request. You're not going to say, okay, I want you to be dressed right. I want you to stand up straight. I want you to talk politely. I want you to be respectful. And you put all these conditions before your child can even approach you. That is just not the, the way we do things. We long to receive our children and our children's petition. But if they're disobedient, then that's another matter. God is not petulant. God is extravagantly gracious. He, every good gift comes from above, tells us, James tells us. Why? Because Psalm 106 verse 1 tells us that he is good. In fact, it says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy is everlasting. How wonderful. So let's focus on how the prayer lives of these first believers dramatically changed. How it took a new turn, a dramatic turn once they embraced the gospel. As I said, they already were people of prayers. All Jews prayed. But something changed when they were born again. And this is what changed. First, the new covenant all of a sudden made sense. Now, what do I mean by the new covenant? You need to go back to how the Jews prayed prior to the coming of Christ. They were under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant signed or sealed on Mount Sinai, and God gave them the tablets that represented the Old Covenant. And so whenever a Jew would pray, whenever an Israelite would pray, he would always pray on the basis of that covenant. He would not simply come to God any which way. God was very specific and prescribed the rituals necessary uh, when they came before God and the basis on which they came. They came based on the old covenant, this covenant that God had sealed with them. Therefore, only Israel 
could pray to the God of heaven. See, the surrounding nations would receive the blessings of rain and sun and harvest, and they would be praying to Molech and Baal and Astarte and Chemosh, different gods, right? They wouldn't be praying to the God of Israel because God of Israel had not revealed himself to them. Only this small nation called Israel was the, the nation that had entered into a covenant with the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth. And so God revealed himself and revealed the covenant. And the covenant basically had conditions. And the conditions were that God's people were to obey and not worship other gods and, and worship God alone and uh, not take his name in vain and not make idols and keep the Sabbath and so forth as we read in the Ten Commandments. And God would in turn continually bless them because he had already blessed them by saving them from Egypt. He had already delivered them and now had given them this protection night and day. So basically, they entered into this covenant. But we know the story. Israel did not keep the covenant. And whenever they broke the covenant, God would allow, for example, surrounding nations to um, invade the land. And after multiple warnings, we read that God finally let them go into captivity. And they went into, talking about Judah, they went into Babylon. And um, how would they pray from a faraway country? Well, they would pray remembering the covenant. That's how they prayed. No Israelite, no Jew would come before God without remembering the covenant. So this is how Daniel prayed, for example, while he's away in captivity in Babylon. Daniel 9, verses 3 to 5, Daniel had been in Babylon for 70 years, and he realizes that the prophecy, according to Jeremiah, said that after 70 years, God's people would return back to Judah, and nothing was happening. So he says in verse 3, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and pleading with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he's humbled. He's saying, Lord, I, I am really repentant. We are repentant. We understand why you banished us from the land of Judah. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant? See, the word covenant is brought up. And faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. So they, they, Daniel is saying, we broke the covenant. But the covenant made provision that if somebody, as a nation, they broke the covenant, they could return back to God in repentance and God would hear if Israel would be willing to renew the covenant. And that's what Daniel was doing here. So though he was a slave hundreds of miles away in a faraway land, Daniel confesses his sins, the sins of the people, and remembers the covenant. You see, you cannot approach God aside from the covenant. You can't. There's just no way. Unless God takes the initiative of establishing a covenant with a group of people, and that, in this case it was Israel, there was just no way that Israel could have come before God. 
On, basis, on what basis would they have come before God? So whenever a Jew prayed, he would pray remembering the covenant. In fact, you often find this prayer in the Old Testament. O God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. What is the prayer? What does this prayer mean? What is he saying when he prays this way? He's remembering the covenant that God established with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. And based on that covenant, I am coming before you. And that's what that means. Every Old Testament saint, Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, always make mention of the covenant when they pray. And this continued for centuries until Jesus came. And when Jesus comes, what does he do? Well, he introduces a new covenant. Remember, we spoke about that last week. The new covenant that he sealed with the shedding of his blood on the cross. That's what the breaking of bread speaks about, right? So it says, this is my body broken for you, and this is the blood of the new covenant. Now, of course, when the disciples heard that for the first time, they said, what new covenant? We already have a covenant with God that was established at Mount Sinai. That's the covenant we have. But Jesus is speaking about a new covenant, and they didn't understand it at all. But so what was the privilege? What were the, the new the differences about this new covenant? Well, for one, they would be forgiven totally of their sins. But that's another topic. But here's a great privilege. They would pray differently. They would approach God differently. No longer would they say, Oh, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. It's not that covenant. Not that that's wrong to pray that, but when you're praying that, you're remembering that covenant. No, they would pray like this. Matthew 6, the Lord teaches the prayer that the disciples would be praying. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's much we can say about this prayer, but this is the first thing we notice. Jesus tells his disciples to call God Father. Why? Because of the new covenant. You see, no Old Testament saint ever called God Father. They would always pray, like I said earlier, O God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, or God of Israel, because he had established a covenant with Israel. But never would they pray, Father. This was totally new. I can imagine the disciples listening to Jesus that day, before he had died, of course, and he was still with them, and Father. They must have turned to each other, I'm going to call God Father? Well, I'm, how can I call him father? He's, I'm not his son. See, God's people were servants. They weren't children of God. They were servants of God. And though that was a privileged position compared to every other nation who were pagans and did not know God at all, still, Jesus had come to introduce to them the new covenant which gave them the right to call God Father because they would be children of God. 
when did this actually become effective? Because Jesus taught it, but they still couldn't pray it. They couldn't. Not until Jesus died and rose again. After Jesus rose again, we see Mary at the garden looking for the body of Jesus because she wanted to anoint it and just be with the Lord that she loved that had been crucified. But the body is gone. And, and then she's looking around and she's weeping. And then suddenly, Jesus reveals himself. And, and she runs and she bows and she clings to him. She holds on to his feet. And this is what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene in John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and what? Your father. My God and your God. Now they knew God was their God, but their father? My father? Yes, Jesus was the son of God. But now he is calling them brothers. And he's saying, this is your father. Because of the new covenant, it's sealed. I shed my blood and the covenant is now in force. And because of my resurrection, whoever believes enters into the covenant with me. How beautiful. And this is what Paul is alluding to when in Romans 8 we read these words. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. See, had Jesus not died, he would have been the son of God, but not the firstborn. To be firstborn, there have to be many other children. And so the moment Christ died, he now becomes the elder brother of everyone who believes. So that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. So those who are children of God. Now we can call God Father. And that's what happened to the early believers. They were amazed with this. They, they started to understand. The moment they became believers, the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and they started to say, Father, Father. Now imagine these Jews going around calling God Father while every other Jew was saying, Oh, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And here were the Christians, Father, Father, Abba. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, that's daddy in Aramaic. That is really endearing. That is so intimate. So this great creator of the universe, this infinite God, becomes our father because of Christ's death on the cross. There's no other way. That's what Jesus meant. There is no other way to the Father but through me. So you can't come to, the, to God on any other ground. If you're a Jew, you can say, O oh God of Israel, or God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that's the covenant that Israel entered into as a nation with God at Mount Sinai. But anything else is not possible. You cannot pray to God. You can't. If you come on any other basis... You're coming arrogantly. You've got to come in Jesus' name. But you say, listen, I've got so many prayers answered. As I said, in the days of Israel, the pagan nations prayed to their gods. They prayed to Baal and Molech and so forth. And they thought 
They, these gods were giving them the rain. These gods were giving them children. But it was God giving them blessings because he reigns on the just and on the unjust. That's just common grace that God gives. So many people pray like slaves. They don't pray as sons and daughters. They pray as slaves. They're fearful, doubting, guilt-ridden, defeated. They pray sheepishly. They come before him and say, I don't know. If you're born again, child of God, take courage and just pray boldly. Call him Father. He loves his children. He delights in them because he delights in his firstborn, Jesus Christ. So you imagine those believers praying everywhere, Father, Father, we come before you, praying with boldness. Now someone may ask, how come we don't mention the new covenant in our prayer? See, the Old Testament saints would say, O God of Israel, or God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't say that. How come? But we do. We make mention of the covenant every time we use this expression, in the name of Jesus. That's what that means. When you use that expression as a Christian praying to the Father, you're just simply saying, because of the covenant that Jesus sealed with his blood on the cross. Every true believer praying in Jesus' name is mentioning the covenant. No one can come to God unless he comes on the terms of this new covenant. And the child of God who was born again sees this. And that's what happened in the early church. They saw this and they started to come to God on the basis of the new covenant, calling him Father. And they were praying with boldness and great joy. Their prayer life also took a dramatic turn because of the new house. Not only because of the new covenant, but the new house of God. Every Jew, when he prayed, knew that he had to pray at the temple. That's where prayers were accepted. But let's imagine I could not be at the temple. Or worse yet, let's imagine I was a slave, like Daniel in faraway Babylon. How do you pray? We only could pray at the temple. That's what Solomon said in the dedicatory prayer that we find in 1 King, Kings uh, 8. When he dedicated the temple to God, he said, from verse 29, so that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. Why? To listen to the prayer which your servant will pray toward this place. Right? And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. So God's people knew they had to pray at the temple, but when they could not physically be there, they prayed facing Jerusalem, facing the temple. So the Old Testament prayers were based on the covenant, one, and therefore they prayed all, only on the basis of the covenant, but also they prayed at the temple or facing the temple. We see this, for example, in the life of Daniel again. If you look at Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is in Babylon. He's removed from his homeland. He is um, there as a slave in Babylon. And we read that uh, when in, in, in um, Daniel chapter 6, starting from verse 
10 that when Daniel learned that the document was signed, he entered his house and in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and offering praise before his God, just as he had been doing previously. So what did Daniel do? He's in a faraway land. He would be praying three times a day. The evening sacrifice, the morning sacrifice, and the noonday, uh, a noonday sacrifice. And so every time they would be sacrificing at the temple, even though the temple was destroyed, he would still face Jerusalem. There was no temple because the Babylonians had destroyed it. But there he was, three times a day, praying, facing Jerusalem. That's how they prayed. So where do Christians face when they pray? Where do you face? Some people feel they have to go to church, a holy place, they feel. Because if they go to church, their prayers don't mean anything. But that's not what the scriptures tell us, right? We know this because when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, the topic of prayer comes up in this conversation. We find this in John chapter 4. She's a Samaritan. She's not a Jew. And uh, so she tells Jesus in the course of the conversation, uh, she wanted to always ask this question about prayer. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, meaning Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans worship. And yet you Jews, now she knew he was a Jew by the way he dressed, that say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Notice, he says, your worship is invalid. It's not based on a covenant. It's not based on what God had commanded. You just can't come to God any which way. Because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers, regardless of whether they're Jews or Gentiles, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's so much in this passage. But what I want to draw your attention to, one is that God is called Father. The Samaritan woman is told the Father, which means that Jesus is saying, you Samaritans could also know him, even though you're not part of the covenant people called the Jews. And secondly, you no longer need to go to Jerusalem but you don't longer need to go to this mountain. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to a holy place. You don't have to connect with some shrine. No. You worship God in spirit because God is spirit. What does that mean? God is spirit simply means that God is everywhere at the same time. That's the omnipresence doctrine that is mentioned here, that God is everywhere at all times, is Center is everywhere. His circumference is nowhere. And so what we have here that the prayers of God's people are no longer linked to a place, to a local. So I don't have to come all the way to a building to meet with God. So how do we meet with God? We meet with God by meeting with God's people. Some say, well, I'm alone. 
Well, if you're alone, confined to a bread, uh, bed, rather, or you are in prison, or you are elderly and you cannot move, the Lord gives you grace in those moments. And the church needs to be attentive to those who cannot come to the gathering of the saints. But we meet as God's house when we meet together. There's no such thing as a lonely Christian, or in other words, a Christian that is a lone ranger. The Lord left his house, which is the church. So whenever Christians come together in the Lord's name to hear the word, to pray, to confess their sins one to another, and to sing and worship God, that's the church coming together. That's the house of God. For this reason, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place, notice, not in Jerusalem, every place, to pray, lifting up holy hands. So not facing Jerusalem alone, but just lifting up holy hands to heaven and thanking him. So when God's people come together and they lift up holy hands to the Lord in prayer, that's the holy place. And the early church recognized this. So they not only recognized the new covenant that allowed them to call God Father, but they recognized that wherever they were, when the saints would come together, seeking God's face, boldly coming before him in prayer, God would be there manifesting himself in a unique way. The church took a dramatic turn when it came to prayer. And then thirdly, their prayer life took a dramatic turn because of the new Helper sent from God, the new helper. Israel, under the old covenant, prayed. As I said earlier, they prayed because the covenant allowed them to pray and worship God. They prayed, centering their prayers to the temple. That's where they knew that God would be hearing their prayers. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So when they prayed, they also only prayed for God's blessing on the land that God would forgive their sins and show them favor and prosper them. We never see Israel praying for the surrounding nations that they would come to become people of God. We don't see them seeking the pagans to make them, to make them know the greatness of God. Look at the Psalms and you will see that they prayed for God's blessing and loving kindness and favor for Israel. In other words, their prayers were very limited in scope. But what about the first Christians, the first church? What happened to them? Did they pray in such a limited fashion? No. And the reason why they didn't, they didn't pray that way is because something happened within. The Holy Spirit came to reside within. The very helper that Jesus spoke of when he said, I will go to the Father and I will ask that he sends you the comforter, the helper, the paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings about you so many tremendous changes in our lives. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He teaches us and leads us into all truth. But there's one special feature, one special activity the Holy Spirit does that we often don't realize, even as Christians. Paul reminds us of the special role of the Holy Spirit who indwells believers. And this is what he says in Romans 8, 26. Now, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we should. We don't know how to pray. We don't. But 
The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints, that's you, child of God, according to the will of God. That's a powerful, powerful passage. It tells us that we have a divine helper as God's children. It tells us that this divine helper, Holy Spirit, knows the mind of God, the mind of the Father. And the one who resides within us prays according to the will of the Father, not according to what we think is best because we just don't know how to pray. Now let me just circle back to what I said earlier on. Remember I said that faint desire for prayer that faint desire that you have to share God's word, that weak longing you have to read scripture. You say, where does that come from? See, all the powers of this world and the desires of your flesh seek to snuff out those desires. But that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit keeps alive the flame, this holy flame of God's desires in you. You say, how do you know those are God's desires? It could be from anyone else. No, they're not. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. You notice that? God is at work in you, both to desire. So any desire you have that is a desire for holiness, a desire for greater love for God's people, a desire for greater uh, passion for his word, a desire to share Christ with your friends, that desires are very faint, they're very weak maybe. Those desires are placed there by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, work out those desires. Work out your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. That's given to you by grace through faith. But you can work out. How do you work out? Well, you work out by telling the Holy Spirit, who's giving you those, you those desires, to strengthen you. To strengthen you so that those desires become a reality. They materialize in your life. So at Psalm 37, it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you delight in God, to delight in his promises, to delight in his love, to delight in who he is, so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That godliness is possible. It is possible, saint, child of God. It's real. The desire to pray, the desire to love others, the desire to obey God do not come from you. They come from the Holy Spirit. And as much as the flesh is powerful and may seem overpowering, as much as the pull of the world is magnetic, these cannot snuff out those desires in the child of God. Why? Well, John 17 shows us why. Jesus, before going to the cross, prays. And this is how he prays to the Father. 
in verse 15, I'm not asking you, and he's praying for his disciples. I'm not asking you to take them, his disciples, out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, God's people are in this world, and we have these powerful winds of the flesh and of the world that blow around us seeking to snuff out any holy desire. But Jesus prayed that we would be kept, kept from the power of the evil one. Now, will God answer that prayer, or will he say, well, you know, I can't because these powers in the life of the believer are really strong. I just can't prevent them from snuffing out those desires that I've fueled in their lives. I can't. I, you know, some of them will lose along the way. That's totally ridiculous. God is sovereign. And Jesus says clearly in John chapter 10 that no one can snatch those who are his from his hand and no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. We're his. And we're his forever because of the work that he started in us and will bring to completion. And that's why Jesus' prayer will be fulfilled for every one of God's children. See, Jesus starts with a hundred sheep, and when one wanders away, he finds that one and he brings it back. Because he starts with a hundred, he finishes with a hundred. So your prayers, as weak and feeble and maybe as scattered as they may be right now, will not be like that forever. I can tell you not only from experience, but I can tell you because God's word reminds us of that. The Father will fulfill the prayer of his Son. God will not fail his Son. This is why the Holy Spirit was given to you, church. That's why the Lord fills us with his Spirit, so that we can fulfill the prayer of Jesus, which is to be kept from the evil one, and preserved till the very end so that we can be presented in his glory with exceeding joy and blameless. That is why you've been given the Holy Spirit. Not so that we can boast about it, though it is our joy to have him in our lives, but so that those desires that God has planted within you will be fulfilled. And though Satan may seek to sift you as wheat, and though the winds of this world will seek to blow out every holy desire in you, God will prevail. And the church will be presented in his presence with exceeding joy. So here we have it. The prayers of the early church were dramatically different. They took a turn which they never expected because of the new covenant allowing them to call God Father for the first time. Secondly, because they realized that the new house of God was not the temple in Jerusalem, but that wherever God's people would come together, that was the house of God, everywhere, in any place. And then thirdly, because of the new helper that came to reside within, helping the believer to pray according to the will of God so that the Christian is being conformed to the image of Christ, the firstborn. What a privilege to pray. When you think of all these amazing truths and what God has done for us, we can say with Paul, for from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, how can we thank you enough for the unique privilege of prayer? We thank you because prayer for the believer is not something that stimulates the senses. And we live in a society where stimulation of the senses is at an all-time high. We want to be visually stimulated, audibly stimulated with sounds and excitement. We want to experience all the awe that we can with our senses. But you don't do that. It's within the secret place of our hearts that you work. I pray that as a church, we would discover and pattern ourselves after the prayer life of the early church, that we would remember this new covenant and that we would remember that the new house of God, which is the church of Christ, and that we would remember this helper, the new helper that is ours, the Holy Spirit who teaches us to pray, and knows the mind of the Father. I pray, Lord, that no Christian, no child of yours would be discouraged. And for those who are, that they would be today reminded of these truths and that they would find great joy in seeking your face and praying. We live in tumultuous times, confusing times. Many are discouraged and dejected. The church has the word of hope. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us much grace so we can share this word of hope with those who are in darkness. Use us at a time like this for your namesake, to the glory of the Father. Amen. May the love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.